having uh, been through the uh, the story of the nativity in the last couple of talks <coughs> and um, with the big day drawing near um, tonight we we turn to um what you might call or term the theology that lies behind it. We've seen the history of the event of Jesus' birth. But tonight, what we're going to do is to look behind it to find out what was actually happening. Um, it was history, sure, the events were real, but what was going on behind the scenes? What is the theology of what was actually occurring through this historical story? Um, and. We'll actually refer to the story. First of all, if you go to Matthew 1, and we'll just, um, just look back over a few of the verses that we've looked at in the last two talks, just to remind ourselves what exactly is going on, what Christmas is actually all about. Not that it was Christmas then, obviously. I mean, it's only become Christmas now, but you know what I mean. And if you find Matthew chapter 1, and... Um, verse 22, and I'm going through these verses in their chronological order, okay. Now, this verse is, is, is when the angel has appeared speaking to Joseph, telling him that the, uh, the child that Mary is pregnant with um, is, is being uh, born of the Holy Spirit, you know, just to reassure Joseph that Mary hadn't been unfaithful in any way. And in verse 22, we read this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And this is what the Lord said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if you go back into Isaiah chapter 7, actually turn to the prophecy that's being quoted here. Obviously, we're going to see exactly the same verse, but uh, see it in its original context. Isaiah and chapter 7. Chapter 7 and, and, and verse 4. And um, it's, it's perhaps of, of, of interest that um, in Isaiah, chapters 1 to 5, you, you, you have... Isaiah denouncing all the sin that's going on around him, and quite rightly too. Um, it's all God's word, but it's, it's, it's woe, woe, woe. You know, it's, this is very much law. There's not a lot of grace here. This is just condemnation. Now, obviously, the law has to come first. The law condemns us. The law convicts of sin, and that always comes first. And then in chapter 6, you have the occasion when Isaiah has what I, I call the appointment that we all have to keep with the Lord at some point. And, um, and Isaiah sees the Lord in all his glory. And, and after five chapters of woe to you and woe to you and woe to him and woe to her and woe to them, uh, Isaiah, seeing the Lord in all his glory, high and lifted up and his train fills the temple, um, Isaiah cries out, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. And, and there it's the point where Isaiah suddenly realises, or not suddenly realises for the first time, he always knew that he was as sinful as the people that he was preaching against, but nevertheless, it, you know, the Lord really showed him the truth about himself, and, and, and now it's Isaiah you know, in the dust, in repentance before God. And, and after that breaking before the Lord. It's in chapter 7 where we have the first words about the coming of Jesus. And, and I think that's tremendously symbolic that Isaiah, certainly filled with the Spirit, being led by the Lord, but it's kind of, you know, bashing people over the head for sin. Well, fair enough, that message has to be spoken. But then it's only after he's really been broken that after that Jesus starts to come through him. And there is the difference, isn't it, between law and grace. Yeah, we've seen this again and again and again. The law came through Moses, bash, 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 sin, sin, sin. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And it's only after Isaiah has been broken himself 
that the treasure inside of him starts to come out and the life of Jesus shows through. So with Isaiah, you know, the great prophet of doom and repentance, and that was all quite right, but the problem with Isaiah, it was out of balance. Then he's broken, and then the light, the treasure starts to shine out, and then he starts to, to teach about the coming of Jesus. And, uh, and of course, it's the verse 4 we need here. We'll just um, read it. Did I say verse 4? Verse 14, I think. Yes. And therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now just um, note at this point that the Hebrew word here for virgin doesn't necessarily mean virgin. It can mean virgin, but it can also simply mean someone who's unmarried. And, you know, kind of like all, you know, the liberals and the modernists in the church today make a big thing about this and they are saying the virgin birth was all a big mistake. We're not supposed to believe it was a virgin birth. And here in that prophecy that the church has always taken that it's going to be a virgin birth, well, the Hebrew word means someone who's not married. So it doesn't necessarily mean a virgin. And that's true as far as the Hebrew, Hebrew goes. But the problem is in Matthew, which is quoted in Greek, the word is quite specifically virgin. There's no escaping from it. So we have here, quite clearly, a virgin birth. But the point is, this son who is born to a virgin is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that is what lies behind Christmas. God becoming a man. Go now to Luke chapter 1. Keep your finger light in Matthew as well, because we'll be back there in a minute, but Luke chapter 1. And in verse 43, and this is Elizabeth speaking to Mary. Elizabeth pregnant with John the Baptist and Mary pregnant with Jesus has come to see her. And in verse 43, Elizabeth says to Mary, but why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me. Now, there is a Jew speaking. And when a Jew speaks about my Lord, they're speaking about the Lord God of Israel. They are speaking about the one true God. And here, Elizabeth says to Mary, you are the mother of my Lord. Why? Because the Lord God of Israel was in process of becoming a human being and was at this stage a little baby inside of Mary. And then go through into verse 76 and this is Zechariah after he was, uh, you know, remember he was struck dumb because of unbelief, now he's speaking again and he's prophesying in regards to his son John the Baptist here, but in verse 76 he says, and you my child will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Now, here again is Zechariah saying, my son, John the Baptist, is going to be a prophet of the Lord, and he's going to go before the Lord and make the way clear for him. Now, who did John the Baptist go before? He went before Jesus. He prepared the way for him. And yet here, Jesus is the Lord. He's saying, my son John is going to prepare the way before the Lord. And so there you have it, Zechariah speaking quite clearly that John the Baptist was going to be preparing the way for the Lord God of Israel, Jesus, God becoming a man. Go back to Matthew chapter 2. This is just to establish that what, you know, when I say we're going to look at the theology tonight, you've got to see that this is all grounded in the history, obviously. Matthew chapter 2 verse 2, and this is just um, a little point about the Magi, and uh, this is what the Magi you know, was asking, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, who do you worship? Well, you worship the Lord God, and they have come to worship this little baby. And, uh, and then in, uh, back into Luke, chapter 2 and verse 49 and just one 
one verse here, and this is uh, when Jesus was in the temple, age 12. And uh, you remember by the time Mary and Joseph actually found him, um, in verse 48, you read, His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Um, why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And there is Jesus reminding his mother, Mary, who was his mum, that Joseph, who she said is your dad, he's saying, no, he's not my father. I'm in my father's house now, the temple of God. And there you have Jesus highlighting that absolute unique thing that he had with his father in heaven. And whereas the Jews saw themselves as a nation, as being God's son, it was completely new for an individual to say that God was his father. The idea of God being the father of the individual was completely new. The Jews had no concept of that at all. And that is why, you know, when Jesus kept saying things like, my father and I are one, they wanted to stone him because they knew full well what he was saying. The direct claim to be God himself. And so what we're seeing, what's going on here, the actual event that's happening, is that God is literally becoming a man, a human being. We have here what the theologians call, quite rightly, the incarnation. The incarnation. That is what Chris Christmas is all about. Incarnation, carnate, to do with the body. Carnal, to do with the flesh. This word comes from the Greek word sarx, which means the flesh. And so what we've got here in the Christmas story is God becoming a human being. The one true God takes on human flesh and becomes a living, breathing human being. If you just go to, um, to 2 Timothy, just after 1 Timothy, just after 1 Timothy indeed, and um, One Timothy chapter two and uh, verse three, and Paul says, "This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus." And what you've got here is that obviously the problem, as we're going to see, was from the very start the problem of sin. And that the human race needed a mediator. Someone who could, as it were, take the hand of the human race and take the hand of God and bring the two together. But of course, man couldn't do it because the sin was on his side. God had to do it. And yet to be a mediator between God and man They've got to be two basic things about that person. They've got to be God and they've got to be man. Only a person who is God and man can be a mediator between God and man. And in the Christmas story, in the incarnation of Jesus, that is exactly what we have. God becoming a man. And in order to become a man, he has to be born as a baby. And that is exactly what is happening here. Now if you go to Philippians chapter 2, and we'll, we'll see Paul speaking about this in more detail and, and really developing it, really showing us exactly what was going on. Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 1 to 11, and then we'll take it apart in a little bit more detail. Philippians chapter 2, and start reading at verse 1. He says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, there's two things there that Paul is dealing with. He's dealing on the one hand with the, the essence of what it means that God became man, but he's dealing also with something else. He's dealing with the character of God and the manner in which God did become man. Now, let me say, uh, some, some time ago, a few years ago, I met a guy, he was a bit of a nutter, um, and he was an ex-RAF pilot, and, uh, you know, he was like a, you know, sort of like a squadron leader, and he was also one of the test pilots. So, you know, he, he, he was one of the, the daredevil whiz kids, you know, sort of from the um, RAF, dishonorably, dishonorably discharged. Um, that, that, that for having waved at the Christian Union um, in Hull, um, in his jet, <laughs> at about 100 feet up and breaking it nearly every window in Hull, and so he got dishonorably discharged. Um, but he, he actually held the record in the RAF for jet ascent, i.e. he had got his jet to ascend, go up faster than anyone else. And, and there's actually a, you know, a record for this. Now the key to it, because you might think that, well, I mean, a jet flies up just as fast as a jet goes, surely. Now if you just do it from takeoff, it does. But the knack with jet ascent is basically that if you ascend in a jet having plummeted, like come down first, so you take the jet up really high, and then you just plummet, all right, just down and down and down, and then you sort of like level out and then thrust upwards. The fact that you've been coming vertically down for so long means that you go up even faster. Now the knack is waiting until the last possible second before you come out of the dive and start flying up again. Now that's where the guts come in. That's why there's a record. Because of course, if you're too cautious, and you don't come down low enough, and you know you, you, you fly up at a few hundred feet, you're not really going to get fast enough. But on the other hand, if you're not cautious enough, you leave it too late to come out of the dive and you're dead, because you, you just pile into the ground. Okay. So the point is that this guy, and the reason I say he's a nutter, is precisely because he, he was able to judge it so that he was literally just yards above the ground when he made the swoop. And of course you're travelling at several hundred miles an hour. So what you've got is this massive swoop from up, as high as you can go, down and then up again. But the speed at which you can go up is directly proportional to the speed you've attained on your way down. Okay. Now bear that in mind as we approach the verses here. Because someone has called this the low-level approach. And that in God becoming a man, he's done something, in fact, rather similar to this jet ascent that I've been talking about. Now, we'll go through it verse by verse, all right, and, and, and then you'll, you'll start to get the picture. 
Now, in verse 5, all right, we'll come back to verses 1 to 4 a bit later, but in, in verse 5, basically, Paul is saying, look, your attitude should be the same as that in Christ Jesus. So, what he's saying, in, the, in what Jesus has done in becoming a man, epitomises the attitude, the outlook, that we are supposed to have. Because what God has done in Jesus tells us something about the sword of God that he is. And what Paul is saying, because God has done this, and that's what he's going to describe, he's saying, therefore, you've got to be the same. So, he's talking about Jesus, and he says in verse 6, who, being in very nature God. Now, what he's saying there, all right, that obviously Jesus is always was, and therefore always will be, God. Jesus is God. This Christ Jesus, whom he's talking about, who lived and died on the cross and rose again, he says, being in very nature God. He was God. But then he goes on to say, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, the idea that you've got there, all right, was that Jesus, although he was God, he had a position, he was God in the highest heaven, safe, above everything, there, all right. But the point was, he was willing to let go of that. He was willing to let it go. If you want something, or if you love something enough, if it means enough to you, if someone approaches to take it away, you grasp it to you, don't you? You know, you're, you're not having it. You know, you're, you're not my hi-fi or whatever it might be. I'm not going to let you have it. Grasping it. Now, the point is, the position that Jesus had in heaven as God himself, he was prepared, when approached, as it were, by the Father with the idea of salvation, he was willing to let that go. He was willing to give that up. <clears throat> he was willing to forego his position as God in all his glory to let that go in order to become a human being, in order to save us. He was prepared to make that sacrifice. And in verse 7 says, but made himself nothing. Now, that's not a very good translation. What it should be there is, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now, we've got to understand here, all right, is that when Jesus became a human being, he emptied himself. Now, some people say that this means that he kind of like he stopped being God. Well, that's silly. You can't stop being God. If you're God, you're always going to be God. I mean, that's fundamental. Um, and some people think, you know, that sort of like, you know, Jesus in becoming a man lost all his powers. That didn't happen either. If you've got the power, you've got the power. But the point was that Jesus was prepared to become a human being and in becoming a man, become an ordinary man. Therefore, all the power he had, all the strength, all the ability he had as God, he left that behind in heaven. And he didn't use it. Because obviously, if he was going to become a man to be an example and to save us, then he had to live like us. If he was to live a life free of sin, he couldn't have an unfair advantage, almost that he couldn't sin or something. So he became a man in exactly the same way that we did. And it wasn't that Jesus emptied himself of anything in particular, he emptied himself. If you go over into verse 17, there's a little phrase that Paul uses, because Paul at this point was expecting to be martyred by the Romans. And he says, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. Now what Paul was saying, he was expecting to die. And he uses the picture that he was about to be poured out as a drink offering. Now there were various offerings under the law where you took a precious drink and you poured it out. Now that's the picture. Because if you pour out a drink, you've got a glass, you've got the drink in it, you sacrifice it, you pour it out, you're emptying the glass. You see what I mean? You're sacrificing it. Now that is what Jesus was doing. It's like he was poured out of heaven as an absolute sacrifice because his position there, he was prepared to let that go in order to come and be the means of our salvation. And so therefore, he emptied himself. He gave all that up to become a human being a little baby, vulnerable like any other 
baby was, all right? And then he says, taking the very nature of a servant. Now that's important, because when we're saying that Jesus became a man, and what we're talking about here is we're talking about God changing his very mode of existence. This is what we're talking about. Jesus, the second person of the triune God, changing his mode of existence. He wasn't a human being, but in the incarnation, he's becoming a human being. We literally have God, the Son, changing his mode of existence from what you might call very God of very God, as the carol says, to becoming a human being. But when he did that, there are numerous types of human being he could have become. He could have become, for instance, the most human being on the face, the most powerful human being on the face of the earth. But he didn't. He took the nature of a servant. So that when he became a man, he became a man who was specifically submitted to his Father in heaven and who was going to live a life of service for the good of others around him. So, Jesus didn't just become a man, alright, he became a servant, not even a free man. He came, he was born, having already relinquished his free will to his Father saying, whatever you want me to do, that I will do. I will not move independently in any way at all. And then it says, being made in human likeness. Now, can you see, all right, we've got Jesus in heaven, all right, changing his mode of existence. And from being God in his original form, the very nature of God, lays that aside, is poured out and becomes a human being. Now, can you see that is a step down? A plummet is beginning. So then the jet, which is right up as high as it can go, starts to plunge. It's a downward step, all right? Because believe you me, when you're God, if you become a man, that's a downward step, all right? If a man could become God, he couldn't. But if a man could become God, that would be an upward step. But when God becomes a man, that's a downward step. The plunge, the low-level approach, has started. Then in verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. So here we have, you see, Jesus is going lower and lower and lower. Now, not only has he become a man, he could have become a man like Adam, before he was subject to death. But no, Jesus becomes subject to death, voluntarily, because it was the death that he died that set us free from sin. So he's going down, 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 down. But then it says, even death on a cross, which was the most shameful death of all. So. If you thought, well, God can't go any lower than becoming a human being, surely. Well, he can. He can die. Oh, right, but when God becomes a human being and then goes even lower and dies, surely he can't go any lower. Yes, he can. He can die the death of a cross. And then look what happens. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. You see, the jet, if it goes down as low as it can, it will go up higher. And therefore Jesus, having gone down as low as he possibly could, now goes back up as high as he could. And he returns to his place in heaven. All the glory that he laid aside, he's now got back. But the difference is, he remains a man. So the gospel is that there's a man in heaven, a glorified man, Jesus. God became a man and he's now glorified again, but he's still a man. And because there's one human being in heaven, it means that many more can follow. Jesus was our forerunner, as the writer to the Hebrews says. And so what you've got here, just like this jet coming down, is you've got a low-level approach. And the idea being, where were you and I? Well, we were human beings. 
But where else were we? We were subject to death because of sin. And we were headed, weren't we, for Hades and then Lake of Fire, as low as you can get. And remember, at the point when Jesus actually came to the earth, Hades and Paradise were in the centre of the earth. And remember that Jesus actually went down into the centre of the earth. So what you've got is this. God in heaven becomes a man, and he swoops down as low as he possibly can. But because he's gone as low as he possibly could, he then returns to be as high as he could. But the difference is, in the swoop, he's grabbed you and I, and he's taken us. He's plucked us out of the power of death, and he's taken us back up there in glory with him. That is what the incarnation was all about. God becoming a man, so that mankind, through turning to Jesus, could share in his glory. You can't share in his godhood, you can't be God, only he is God. But God becomes a man so that we can share everything that he is. If you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 7, it's just in regards to something that's going to... Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, rather, verse 17. This is referring to something that's going to happen in the future, indeed the rapture. And uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17. And he's saying after that, he's spoken about the fact, you know, that when the rapture happens, that, you know, the dead in Christ shall rise first. You know, that, that all the believers who have died, all right, you know, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he took paradise in the centre of the earth back to heaven. So since then, throughout the church age, if a believer dies, they go straight to be with Jesus in heaven. But nobody. So at the rapture, Jesus brings all them and they get their glorified bodies first. And then he says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now the reason that this event that's going to happen in the future gets referred to as the rapture is that it comes from the Latin word rapio that means to be caught up. That's the word that is used here. And the idea is, in the rapture, we're going to be on the earth, if we're alive when it happens, and caught up. You know, God's hand comes down and reaches us. A low-level approach again. It's the jet is going to come back. Only this time, it's going to pluck up those who are alive, not just to get them to heaven, but to give them a body that is glorified. And you've got the same idea, caught up. If you're caught up, it's because something higher than you has come down to where you are and then taken you back to where it was originally. And so in the rapture, in one event, we have kind of like a second rerun or replay of the actual incarnation. The idea of Jesus being in heaven, prepared to give that up, coming down to where we were so that he could take us back up to where he was. And so you've got that picture here all the way through, that Jesus was prepared to give up everything he had there, to lay it aside, to come down to where we were, become a man, but then take on him the consequences of sin and to die in our place so that he could take us to heaven, so that where he started off from, he comes down on his own, comes down to where we are, but when he goes back, he's not on his own. He's taking all those who believe on him, so that he's populating heaven with people who are glorified human beings, just like he is. And of course it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the first four verses here, in Philippians chapter 2, what Paul is saying, that is what the incarnation is all about. That is what has actually happened. God has become a man which was as big a sacrifice as he could make. It was sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. He was putting us first. He didn't think about himself, he put others first. And what Paul is saying, in the light of that, this is what you should be doing with each other. He says the incarnation, God becoming a man, is the ultimate sacrifice. Well, the ultimate sacrifice has two aspects. Firstly, God becoming a man, that is a sacrifice that we can't understand. But then, when having become a man, he dies on the cross and takes sin on him, 
That's the second aspect of it. We can't begin to fully understand these things, but the very nature of God himself is a God who is prepared to sacrifice himself for the good of other people. And so what Paul is saying here, he says, look, that is the God that you have fellowship with. Therefore, that is what you need to be in regards to each other. But there you see the heart of it, the incarnation, the Christian story, the Christmas story rather, is God becoming a human being. If you go to uh, John's Gospel in chapter 1, another verse that speaks about this, John's Gospel, chapter 1. And uh, we'll, we'll start with, with verse 1. And John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, it's quite interesting this, because there are various Greek words for word. Right? Now, the Greek word for word here <laughs> is the word logos. Now, that's complicated, I'll say it again. There are different words in the Greek for the word, word. <laughs> Alright? The word used here for word is logos. And what it means, well, it, it means reason or mind. But it meant different things in regards to the Greeks and the Jews. The Greeks, in their philosophy, they, they kind of believed in a kind of a very vague, a very undefined and a very unknowable divine force. So, so that on the one hand you could say they did believe in God, but on the other hand you could say they believed in loads of gods because they were all manifestations of the same divine force. But one of the, the concepts they put on this divine force, whatever it was, was this logos. That was the word they used for it. And it denoted to them the idea of mind or reason. Now, the tie-up with the word word and why it gets translated word is that obviously if I speak, if a word comes out of my mouth, it's been conceived in my mind first. So before it becomes a spoken word, it's an idea. It's a reason. I've got a reason for speaking the word I eventually speak. But the word isn't the crux of the matter. It's the idea in my mind that the word is speaking of. That's what really matters. And that is what the logos was to Greek thinking. So what they said is that behind the universe, even though we can't understand it, we can't penetrate it, we can't know it, nevertheless there is a divine logos. There is, even though we can't fathom it, there is a divine reason behind existence. There is a divine mind at the back of everything that there is. Now that was the concept that the Greeks had. Now the Jews, who were obviously very exposed to Greek philosophy, because although the time of Jesus saw the Romans, you know, sort of like running the then known world, the point was that the Romans had taken over from the Greeks. And prior to the Romans ruling the world, the Greeks did. And so Israel had been very, very subject to Greek ideas, Greek culture, philosophy, etc., etc. And so this idea of Logos, they were very familiar with. As familiar as you and I would be with Buddha, or something like that, okay? And what they had done, they had taken the same concept, but they'd applied it to the Lord God of Israel. So they used the same term, but of the God who had revealed himself to Moses and in the Old Testament scriptures. So, the Greeks used logos of the unknowable and undefined God, whereas the Jews used it of the God who they knew. But what is so interesting, if you go down into verse 14, is that John goes on to say, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father 
full of grace and truth. So what John is saying is that this God, who to the Greeks is undefined and unknowable, the reason behind the universe, but whom we as Jews know as the Lord God of Israel, he says, this Logos, this word, this God, has become flesh. And the Greek word there for flesh is sarx, which is the word you get carnate from, the incarnation. This is John speaking about it blatantly. John doesn't go into the Christmas story. He doesn't go into any of the historical details of how the word became flesh. He just says, Jesus is God become a man. He doesn't go into the history of it. He knew that Matthew and Luke had done that. He just is saying, God has become a man. How that came about, that's not for me to say. You can read that in Matthew and Luke, but I'm just telling you that the Logos, the word, God himself has become a human being. And of course, the human being that he's referring to here is, of course, Jesus. And when he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling um, is skinuo, and it actually means to pitch a tent. It's from the verb to pitch a tent. And the idea here for the Jewish mind would have been the tabernacle, the tent of meeting in the Old Testament. Do you remember when um, Moses led Israel out of uh, Egypt and through the wilderness heading for the promised land? You'll remember that uh, when God gave him the law and he was up in Mount Sinai, the Lord also gave him the design for a tabernacle, a portable temple, a tent, literally. And the idea was that when they built this tent, because they lived in tents in the wilderness, and the idea being that once they built it, in order to show them that he was with them, God moved in and, as it were, lived in the tent. So they lived in tents, and so he lived in a tent as well. And, of course, they had the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was harking back to this very thing. And that even once they were in the land, when they were living now in houses, and you remember, Eventually, Solomon built God a temple rather than a tent. So they lived in houses, so God lived in a house. But even once they had houses in the land, once a year they had this thing where they all moved out and they lived in tents. And it was to remind them that in the wilderness they were travelling around and lived in tents and that God lived in a tent as well with them, called the Tent of Meeting. And the idea being that what God was showing all the time is that he was going to be with them in an ever-increasing sense of that word. So, they lived in tents, so did God. And then they lived in houses, so did God. But ultimately, something else happened. If you go to 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and read the first four verses. Now listen to this. Paul says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, to, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, I don't know if you can see the thought that Paul is pursuing there. He's referring to the human body as a tent. And what he's saying is, in our present state, we are living in the tent of the human body. But what he's saying is that at the moment we're subject to decay. He says, meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed with the heavenly dwelling. So that down here our bodies are subject to decay. But of course we know that one day, and this is after the rapture, our bodies are going to be redeemed as well. 
And our bodies, which are now perishable or corruptible, subject to decay and death, are going to be glorified, made incorruptible, everlasting. And what he says is, he says, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, so he's talking about one day we're going to die, he says, um, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. And what he's saying is our body down here, before it's glorified, is a tent, but when we're glorified, our body is going to be like a house. Now, can you see the difference between a tent and a house? The temporary nature of a tent, but the solid nature of a house, the permanence of it. Now then, so the point is, our bodies now are a tent, but our glorified bodies aren't going to be a tent, they're going to be a house. Now then, in the Old Testament, when God brought them out of Egypt, they lived in tents, and he lived in a tent, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Then they got into the promised land, and they lived in houses, and he lived in a house, the temple. And can you see, it's a picture of a progression that's going to happen to us. At the moment, we live in a body that is mortal, a tent, but one day we're going to be glorified, our body will be incorruptible, and then it's going to, as it were, be more like a house permanent, unlike a tent that is very temporary. Now, the picture here, the whole time, all right, is that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Or, if you want to translate in a literalistic way, which is good here, the Word or the divine reason, the mind at back of creation, whom we know to be the Lord God of Israel, this is the literal intent of his words, came and pitched his tent amongst us. So what you've got is this, that when the Word became flesh, he put on a tent just like ours, a mortal body subject to corruption just like ours. But when Jesus was glorified, his body became a tent, uh, a house, as it were, permanent, just like it's going to be with us as well. So the point is that in the wilderness, they lived in a tent, God lived in a tent. In the land, they lived in a house, God lived in a house. But all the time, in reality, we live in a body, and so God lived in a body as well. God became a human being just like us. He took a human body in exactly the same way that you and I have, and he ran the same route in that body because he died in it. It was a temporary tent, but having died in it, he received a glorified body which is like a house. And in Corinthians, Paul says in exactly the same way, we've got a perishable thing going now, physically one day we're going to die, but although we're like tents now, one day we're going to be like a building that is absolutely permanent. And can you see, again, that what John is saying here is that the Word of God, the Logos of God, the Word became flesh. God himself took on human form. Israel lived in a tent, so did God. Then Israel lived in a house, so did God. But the truth of the matter is, we all live in a body, so did God. And our bodies at the moment are perishable, so was God's body when he became a man. But then after he died, he received a glorified body just like a house, just like the one that you and I are going to get after the rapture, when our redemption, our salvation, is absolutely complete. And so this is it all the time the heart of what it means for the Christian faith is that God became a human being. God became a man. Go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. And we'll start reading from verse 15. Again, talking about Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, or powers, or rulers, or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
and he is the head of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So, verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. Now, if I look in a mirror, I am beholding my image. Now, what is that image? That is me. That is me. Now, the only difference is, let's say you had um, the invisible man, all right, who you can't see, but you've got like this magic mirror. And when the invisible man looks in this magic mirror, his image can be seen. Now, it's a bit like that. God cannot be seen, all right? He's spirit, invisible. But when the second person of the Trinity becomes a man, the invisible God who cannot be seen, who cannot be understood, who cannot be related to in any way at all, suddenly, because he's a human being, you can see him, you can touch him, you can understand him. Not exhaustively, but you can relate to a human being. You can't relate to God. Who can relate to God? Who could relate to God on Mount Sinai with all the thunderings when he said, don't come, you know, even if an animal steps foot even at the base of the mountain, it will be killed. You can't relate to that. But when God becomes a human being, full of grace and truth, and reveals himself to us in terms we can understand, then, as it were, that's a God you can get close to. And, of course, it was always God's plan that we should be able to get close to him because he always knew that he was going to become a human being. And so, therefore, Jesus was the image of the invisible God. Do you remember what he said? He said to the Jews, look, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He was the express image of the invisible God. Everything that God was, he was as well. And then it says he is the firstborn over all creation. Now then, this is where the JWs step in, don't they? They love verses like this. And, uh, you know, they say Jesus was the firstborn of all creation because they say he was created first. Because, of course, the JWs believe that Jesus was a created being, in fact, an angel. So their belief is that Jesus was an angel who became a man, all right, that he wasn't actually God. And they turn to, you know, a verse like this, the firstborn, they say, look, Jesus was created first. And yet the point is, how do you then make sense of verse 16? For by him all things were created. Well, if Jesus created all things, how could he have been the first thing that was created? I mean, it's just a nonsense. And of course, what you've got here is the idea, and you've got to remember Paul was a Jew, and they knew exactly what he was talking about. The firstborn son carried the full authority of the father. It's the rights of the firstborn son. So the phrase here, talking about Jesus being the firstborn, all right, what it's saying is that Jesus is the one who has absolute authority over all creation. Now, why does Jesus have full authority over all creation? Well, it's because for by him all things were created. That's why he made it. You know, I mean, you know, if I, if I make something, I mean, if I get a lump of clay, and I, I make something, an ashtray or, or, or a cup, well, it's up to me what I do with it. I made it, after all. And Jesus made everything that there is because he is God himself, and therefore he has got absolute power. And then in verse 17, it says, he is before all things, again, talking about, you know, sort of like before, I mean, you know, not just chronologically, because, of course, Jesus existed has always existed, therefore he's before something that has only existed for a certain amount of time. But again, it, it means he's before all things in the same way that the Queen is before me. You see, she's got greater authority than I have. That's what it's talking about here. And it says, in him all things hold together. Now, this is quite interesting, isn't it? Because modern science has come to show that in the atom, the nuclei shouldn't, in fact, hold together. I mean, the atom is a real mystery. Because the, electro, you know, the electric forces should mean that all atoms fly apart. Because particles that normally repel each other, in the atom, the laws of physics reverse and they attract each other. And that's really weird. All atoms ought to be flying apart. So really, nothing ought to exist at all. And what's so fascinating is here, it says that Jesus holds all things together. 
So what is this force at the centre of the atom that goes against the laws of physics? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is holding all the atoms together. And of course the point is, there's going to come a time when Jesus will be finished with the universe as we know it. It will have done its job. He'll be finished with it. Now, he holds it together. So when he's finished with it, what will he do? Well, he'll let go of it. He'll simply remove his influence on it. And when he does, it will fly apart. Literally, at the atomic level, the universe, all the atoms will fly apart. And when that happens, you will have the biggest atomic explosion in history. And what's so fascinating is that in the letter of Peter, he refers to the fact that God once destroyed the earth by water through the flood at the time of Noah, but that in the future, he's going to destroy the universe completely by fire. Now, well, that's amazing. You know, if Jesus holds the universe together. If he lets it go, all the atoms will fly apart and there'll be a massive nuclear explosion, a chain reaction, fire. And that's what Peter describes. And, and then in verse 19 it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And if you just go over into chapter 2 and verse 9, you get the same thought repeated. And he says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now that is what the incarnation is. God, I mean, if we see, you know, God, I mean, the universe cannot contain him, but he fitted into a human being. Well, God can do the impossible. We're up against concepts that we can understand, we can grasp them, but not in any way exhaustively, but we can nevertheless, the concept of God becoming a man and yet still being God, we can grasp that. We can't plumb the depths of it. But that is literally what we're talking about. That is what was happening in a little town of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It was the fullness of the divine filling a human being, a little baby who grew into a man who was God. And, you know, so, so this, this is what we're seeing. This is absolutely at the heart of Christianity. And there are two aspects to it. God becomes a man, but then, having become a man, he deals with the problem of sin. And if you go now to 2 Corinthians 5, again, we've been there once, now we go back to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we saw the thing about tents and bodies and houses in the first part. But now we want the, the end of, of the chapter. And in verse 21, we get this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, you've got to realise that this, the problem that God was facing, or you know, the problem that we were facing, God wasn't facing it, the problem we were facing it, was the problem of sin. But the problem of sin was grounded in the human race. Now, when God overcomes a problem, he overcomes it by becoming it. I'll say that again. When God overcomes a problem, he overcomes it by becoming it. The first stage of the problem was man. All right? There was a problem with man. Adam and Eve had sinned. So there was the first part of the problem. Man was in rebellion against God. So, stage one, God becomes a man, the first aspect of the problem. So God becomes incarnate in human form. But the second aspect of the problem is that man had rebelled because of sin. And what we're told here by Paul, and this is something where it does get absolutely beyond us, but we're told here that not only did God become a man in Jesus, but here that Jesus on the cross actually became sin. I'll read it again. God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So can you see, Jesus, one, took on human form so that we could share his glory in a glorified body. And then secondly, Jesus took on our sin so that we could become his righteousness and therefore be saved. So we're seeing the incarnation. God becomes a man, but then having become a man, as a man, he then goes on to become sin on the cross. Now that you can't begin to go into. We can go into God becoming a man, we, we can sort of delve into that far more than we can delve into this. This will forever be a mystery. All we can do is believe this because it says it. God becomes a man, but then as a man, he actually on the cross became sin. Now that is what the incarnation is all about. And of course the point is back in the uh, Philippians one, when Paul is say, saying, look, in the light of this, this is what your attitude ought to be. And can you see that the way that God goes about things is that he has incarnated himself into our problems. Our first problem, we were human beings, so he became a human being. The second problem, we were sinners, so he became sin. He didn't become a sinner because he never sinned. He became sin itself. And in exactly the same way, in regards to each other and those around us, there's a sense in which we need to learn to be incarnated, if you like, into other people's problems. If, I, if I'm to help you, now obviously we can't do this in regards to everything, in regards to everyone, of course we can't. But we can do it to a certain degree. And it's like, if you've got a difficulty, then I need to become absolutely one with you in that difficulty. Do you see what I mean? To climb in there with you. To forget about myself, to lay that aside, just like Jesus laid his position in heaven aside and to climb right in to your problem and to share it with you and because I'm sharing it, I'm bearing it with you. You share the problem to bear the problem and of course Paul says bear one another's burdens. God became a man and then he became sin. And that's the attitude that we need to have in regards to each other. To be prepared to be incarnated into people's problems to give everything, to lay ourselves aside, to climb right in there with people, to do everything we can to actually help them. And, you know, so in effect, I mean, we were mollowing, wallowing in the quagmire, mollowing. We were wallowing in the quagmire of sin. What did Jesus do? Well, he, he dived straight into that quagmire, right into the middle of it. He wasn't frightened to get his hands dirty. And that's the same with us. See, often we really don't want to get our hands dirty with each other, do we? We, we? we just don't want to get involved. It's easier to hang back, isn't it? Well, if Jesus had hung back, we'd still be heading for the lake of fire. And so, at the centre of Christmas, what Christmas is all about, what we celebrate, is that God becomes a man. He gives his greatest gift to us. And of course, at Christmas, we give prezzies. I mean, it's great, we give prezzies, we get prezzies. All that is great, all that is absolutely wonderful. But the thing that we need to realise, absolutely at the heart of it, is that the gift that God gave us was himself. It wasn't a thing. He didn't give us a present, as it were. Because if you give a present, that is separate from you. The gift he gave was himself. And so that's why it's important that at the heart of any giving that we do, we give because we are given. Do you see what I mean? It's quite possible, you know, to give here and there, but, 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 but you're not yourself given. You know, it's, you know, it's possible sometimes even, for instance, to, to give money as a conscience salver. You know, maybe give a bit of money somewhere precisely because you're not prepared to climb in there and do anything about it. It's easier to give some money. 
The important thing to realize is that any giving that we do is coming out of the fact that we ourselves are given. God gave himself to us and therefore not only must we in return be given ourselves to God but we've got to be prepared to give ourselves for each other and for those around us to lay our lives down for the brethren as uh, John the Apostle says in one of his letters. And so that is at the heart of Christmas. That's what it's all about. God became a man, the ultimate sacrifice. He became a man, and having become a man, he was prepared then to go on and actually become sin for us, so that we could become righteousness in him, so that we could be saved. God gave himself. And therefore, that is what the Christian life is all about, that we give ourselves in absolute fullness to him and therefore to each other as well. So when we're giving prezzies, let's remember that. When we're receiving a prezzy from anyone, let's remember that that speaks of the gift that we received. God himself has given himself to us, and he has. Jesus lives in me. I've got the Lord. Why have I got the Lord? Because he gave himself to me. I've got a watch. Why have I got a watch? Well, because about five years ago on Christmas Day, Belinda gave it to me. I've got the Lord. The watch is on my wrist. The Lord is in my heart. Why is the watch on my wrist? Because it was given to me. Why is the Lord in my heart? Because he was given to me. He gave himself to me. So when you get a prezzy, let it speak of that. But when you give a prezzy, let it speak of the fact that therefore we must give ourselves to him. And we must give ourselves to each other. So the heart of the Christian gospel is the incarnation. The cross that it all pointed towards was the logical conclusion. It's not that the incarnation, Christmas, was like, you know, the beginning and, and then somehow the cross was unrelated but just happened. The one, they led on to each other. Because God becoming a human being was the first stage of the ultimate sacrifice. We can't begin to know what it's like for God to become a human being. That must have been horrific enough. But then he went on and he became sin. So Christmas and Easter, if you like, are linked. They're, they're a circle. You know, you can hardly tell where one ends and the other starts, or where one starts and the other ends. They're, it's all the same sacrifice. It's all the same thing. And so therefore Christmas led on to the cross. And, and, and so it does in our lives as well. God has given himself to us. And therefore, if God is given to us, and if we are given to the God, then that means that the cross is absolutely central in our own lives. That obedience, that submission, that all the time bringing ourselves to the Lord for him to cleanse us from, from our sin. So, that, that's what Christmas is all about. God became a human being. He gave, he gave, he gave, even unto death on a cross. He came down all the way from heaven he came down as low as you could possibly get. But as low as you could possibly get, there was us. And so, on his way back up, he grabbed us and he took us back up. That's what he's done. And so, if there's ever any way at all with anyone that we can, as it were, stoop down to help them and to bring them out of any mess they might be in, then it is our bounden duty to do that if indeed we have received God doing that in our own lives, which we have. So Christmas boils down to what? Giving, giving, giving. It was God giving everything. It was God giving himself. And our response to Christmas is likewise. Surrender to the Lord, fully given to him, and therefore fully given to those around us as well. So, a very Merry Christmas to everybody. And of course, a happy new year, which it will be if we really live in this, a revelation of Christmas.